So when we look at the overall stock market, about 20% of it are made of companies who are dependent technologically upon the long-term use of fossil fuels. So for that core business to still exist in 20 years, fossil fuels are going to have to be around and very prevalent. So this is oil companies, obviously, coal, airlines, airline manufacturers, steel, cement, petrochemical, dirty utilities, etc. These are all dependent upon that. And any technology that would allow that core business to operate in a world where we saw climate change that is deep you know is zero carbon um it is still in the lab it is not whatsoever shown to work at scale and is questionable if it ever will so that 20 percent we divest from we don't want to hold it ethically and we do not want to hold it uh, financially as we're seeing a lot of the volatility right now with fossil fuels welcome back to another episode of who's saving the planet lex key here and i will be your host today So on this podcast, we talk about the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the people that are creating the pathway to a more sustainable future. And we also talk about how we, the everyday person, get involved. And today's podcast is one that I'm really excited to share with you because it gives us an opportunity to back the companies that are going to be creating the pathways to a more sustainable future by putting our money where our values are. So if you have a retirement fund or a Roth IRA or really you're invested in the stock market at all, you know that you have to diversify. But the idea of investing in stock markets and the public traded companies is that you're going to say, I think that companies are going to be more valuable tomorrow than they are today. At one point in 2013, the most valuable company in the world was ExxonMobil. Today, they're not even in the top 10. So if you want to think about how am I going to invest in what I believe to be imperative for the future of our planet, companies that are creating a more sustainable future, Carbon Collective is here to help. So we talk with Zach Stein today, the co-founder of Carbon Collective, about how they've created this financial instrument, how they've created this ability to analyze different companies and segment the market into what they believe to be three categories representing stocks that are going to be not good for the future of the environment, stocks somewhat in the middle, and the stocks that are going to be best in terms of creating a sustainable future. Because we need to be able to put our money where our values lie. If we decide that the most valuable companies in the world are the ones that are going to create the pathway for us to live harmoniously here on earth a little bit longer, then those are going to be the companies with the most resources to actually manifest that future. Okay. Here's our conversation today with Zach Stein, the co-founder of Carbon Collective. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. On the podcast today, we have Zach Stein, the CEO and the co-founder of Carbon Collective. Now, we are going to be talking about financial instruments. And this is something that I'm very interested about because I did buy Peloton last year. And for a brief moment, I was a genius. And now I am exactly back to where I started, which is a very personal anecdote to say the, the one of the most famous investors of the world, Warren Buffett, says, don't try to pick a stock, buy an index and hold on. That's the extent of these things that I'm aware of. And I'm so thrilled to have somebody that understands more about this on to explain it within the lens of using our money to not destroy the planet. Welcome aboard, Zach. Lex, amazing intro. Sorry about Peloton. I'm really glad to be here and talk about sustainable investing and hopefully make things a little bit clearer or at least share some of our perspective with your listeners. 
Can't wait for it. Let's just dive in. What is Carbon Collective? Carbon Collective is a place where individuals and also companies can align their investments with the climate transition. We know what we need to do to solve climate change, and it involves a lot of investment. We have to massively wind down investments in fossil fuels over the next 30 years and massively wind up investments in climate solutions. It's as simple as that. What we, we started Carbon Collective because what we were seeing and what Wall Street was providing um, did not align with that reality. Um, you might have heard of ESG as a framework, still often has a ton of fossil fuel companies, doesn't have any additional climate solution companies. It has a, there's no real clear theory of change with that. So we started Carbon Collective because we wanted to offer a place where you could be a smart investor, but also uh, generate as much climate impact as you can. So then fundamentally, let's just walk it through as a user. Let's say that I give you $100. What happens? So you would invest with us. Mm -hmm. um, you could sign up for a brokerage account, also a retirement, so an IRA, or a, if you have a trust, we also work with those as well. You would through our Thank you. Now that, now that my Peloton is back where it was, I'm afraid my trust is a little bit, it's not as quite as robust as it was before, but bearing in mind. Okay. So whatever, whatever financial instrument we have, we come to Carbon Collective and say, here, here is my pile of money, however big or small. Sure. And you can also just deposit straight cash um, right. uh, in that as well. We help you choose the right portfolio for you. So whether it's our core portfolio, which is built to have a similar risk and reward to a generic index-based portfolio. So that's kind of under that Buffett-esque wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, or our climate-only portfolio, which is a higher risk, higher reward portfolio that is just focused on climate solutions and green bonds. You put in that money, we invest and allocate it. We keep it rebalanced to uh, set and hit your goal each year. Um, and that's basically how it works. So how is that different from a hedge fund? A hedge fund is going to choose like very selective companies with that, often privately held companies. This is all publicly held uh, companies that you could buy on the stock market. So mm -hmm. I, I think a better analogy to what Carbon Collective offers is, a, is what we are, which is an investment advisor. Gotcha. So we offer investment management services because a lot, a lot of people say, hey, I, I know I should invest, but I don't like it or I don't want to, or I feel lost. And right. that is, and I know there's a lot of greenwashing out there and I'm pissed off about it. And I want to I want to avoid it and invest with that. Those are the type of people that we find Carbon Collective is most helpful for. So, um, let's let's then dig into that. It's hard to tell the difference between a company that is purporting to be one that is championing the environment and sustainability in the future, and one that actually is that is doing the work. Especially with you see all the proliferations of companies saying they're going to be net neutral by 2030 or net negative in terms of their carbon output. How are you able to discern the actual environmental impact of these companies beyond what they are simply marketing about? It's such a great question. And it's part of what's really hard about this space. What we do is we look at a company's products and its revenue. So when we look at the overall stock market, about 20% of it are made of companies who are dependent technologically upon the long-term use of fossil fuels. 
So for that core business to still exist in 20 years, fossil fuels are going to have to be around and very prevalent with that. So this is oil companies, obviously, coal, airlines, airline manufacturers, steel, cement, petrochemical, dirty utilities, etc. These are all dependent upon that. And any technology that would allow that core business to operate in a world where we solve climate change, that is deep, you know, is zero carbon, um, it is still in the lab. It is not whatsoever shown to work at scale and is questionable if it ever will. So that 20% we divest from. We don't want to hold it ethically, and we do not want to hold it uh, financially, as we're seeing a lot of the volatility right now with fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. We give that share to the companies that are building solutions to climate change. And so I think this gets kind of to the heart of your question. How do you define that? So we look at independent resources like Project Drawdown, which is the most comprehensive source of climate solutions of what we need to do. Because it's not just going to be solar and wind, but things like building automation, batteries, plant-based foods, et cetera. So um, we look and we say, what is every single publicly traded company that is building a climate solution? Because these are the things that we need to see scale dramatically over the next 30 years. We then remove those who make more money. So we only use revenue. We're not using words because talk is really cheap in this space. It's really easy to make a climate commitment, especially when you know you're going to retire soon as that executive. It's it's going to be someone else's problem. Um, So it's really easy to do that. It's going to be someone else's problem is kind of the, that's what got us here. So yes, that is that definitely hits home. Sorry, keep going though. So you're looking not at words, you're looking at actions. We look at actions. And so we we only really use last year's revenue for that. And so uh, for some companies, that's really simple. So like a solar company, that, that, that's a pure play. All they do is solar, they're in. What about a company like GE, General Electric? They're the second largest manufacturer of wind turbines in the world. All right, that's a pretty important climate solution. But they unfortunately generate more revenue from selling natural gas turbines for power plants and jet engines to product lines that are just fundamentally dependent upon fossil fuels. So we exclude them from that. So we use revenue as a future projection of actions and direction of the company with that. So GE would not be something in your portfolio then because it would be deemed as being more dependent on fossil fuels than it is beneficial for the environment. Correct. Correct. And, and that is a lot. How many stocks do you do this this calculator? How how many so, stocks do you analyze for this? Yeah, so for the climate solutions collection, um, in the 2022 update, we had 169 stocks that made it through the filter. We analyzed about 350 total that were companies that built climate solutions. And so you could see kind of that difference. So it was about 200 that ended up getting removed after that. And we used the total stock market. So it's a collection of about 4,500 stocks that we're um, narrowing that down from. Let's take another use case. Because I think the GE one is, is um, it's a useful case study. What about something like Apple? Right? Yeah. Apple is saying that they are going to be carbon negative um, and actually is doing a lot of really good diligence on the type of carbon offsets that they are purchasing and driving that market. But an Apple phone, an iPhone, uses lots of rare materials that need to be extracted in order to make the semiconductors and the processors that are needed. Um, And the company itself is a massive and sprawling business. How do you break down something like Apple and make a simple binary adjudication? Totally. So this is where we get into a third pillar of our strategy, 
building, which is for that, that core portfolio, which I said is going to be broadly diversified and have a similar uh, risk and reward profile to a generic index-based portfolio. Um, Apple would be in the remaining 80% of the stock market that we broadly hold. And we do that because these are the companies that we want to engage as shareholders. Shareholder engagement is really important. It's a really important tool that is not being used enough in climate. Mm -hmm. Our belief is that it's often being used in the wrong place right now, is that trying to get fossil fuel companies and using that to force them to change um, is not very effective. It is actually focusing on the apples of the world who they care a lot more about what you and I think about them. Um, and their core business can exist in a world where we solve climate change. That is where we should be focusing. So the example I often use here is Coca-Cola, yeah. where for those of us who you know care about the environment, no, Coca-Cola is far from a shining standard. They have been quite negative from an environmental perspective, especially their treatment of watersheds. Um, when we think about the world where we solve climate change, there's no reason why Coke can't sell me a Coke. Mm -hmm. you know, same zero recipe, all of that um, uh, in that world. It just would be 100% powered by renewable energy and delivered on an electrified fleet. Ideally, we can uh, dramatically change how they are interacting with their watersheds, um, even change how they're spending their lobbying dollars, et cetera. That is to us, th that is the test that says, okay, a Coke in our core portfolios, that is the type of company that we should hold, even if we aren't very excited about holding them from an environmental standpoint, because they're unlikely to go away which means that we need to get them to transition to being aligned with solving climate change as fast as possible. And it's a much easier ask because we're not saying stop selling Coke and sell solar panels. We're just saying change how your process is powered. So there's been a number of examples of activists, investors, leveraging what can be a relatively small stake in a company to great effect. Perhaps the most famous is engine number one. Engine number one took a position uh, in an oil and gas company and got them to adopt a more climate-focused outlook through a pressure campaign. Do you guys see your... But again, that is a company that, one, has a phenomenal amount of money and also is a, is a very singular focus, right? That is, a, that is a, a small group of people making a decision around that. It's not a broad, a broad scope investment platform that sort of takes a market approach to these things. How do you see your activism as it will play out? Like, are you actually going to shareholder meetings? Are you raising your raising your hand and saying, this is what I want and I command this many shares? Like, what is your role in that? Yeah, so engine number one were really inspirational for us in that they showed that David can stand up to Goliath. Um, what they got was certainly symbolically meaningful of getting three directors voted onto ExxonMobil's board. Um, that were more climate aware than, or open to the fact that climate change is the crisis that it is. Um, and that's huge. We, and we can get into this if we'd like, we disagree. We, we don't see there being that much actual net, like gain in uh, climate efforts that we have from that type of action of focusing on fossil fuel companies. For us, it's very much, let's focus not on the supply side, which is that, but let's focus on the demand side for it. How do we reduce that as much as possible? And so there's two ways that as shareholders that we interact. One is being a very eager participant of coalitions. So we vote in coalition with, with groups like As You Sow, 
who they are a Berkeley-based nonprofit who has been around for many years uh, building and putting forth shareholder resolutions around a range of issues, many of them environmental. We also very much want to be in a position to start leading shareholder resolutions ourselves and building those coalitions. You don't need a huge number of shares to get that started. And there's something too of the more members we have, the more individuals, is that Coca-Cola sees you and I as consumers. I don't like to use that word, uh, but that is how we are viewed. And so there's extra leverage there. And so when we think about what is a really effective shareholder resolution campaign of what we should be focused on, it should be not how do we get fossil fuels to make some vague commitments about what they're going to do in the future. It's how do we, again, shrink demand. And so how can we you know, work with a Target or a Walmart to get solar panels on every single one of their stores where it makes economic sense um, within the next five years? So not only is, the, is Carbon Collective an investment tool and strategy, you also are adopting an activist mindset to go out and leverage your financial heft to change the way that companies themselves operate. Correct, correct. And we have a long road to go on that. So we're just starting down that. But that mm -hmm. is exactly what we want to be in. We think that there is so much room for improvement and even how we're talking about this space. So much room for improvement is again, that's sort of, that's like also it's someone else's problem. That is absolutely true. We have so much room for improvement. We have, we have undergone an exercise in figuring out what the worst things to do are for the last 50 or so years. And we've been phenomenally successful at that. And so I do think that room for improvement is, it is a generous place to start. Um, okay. I want to talk about BlackRock really quick because I want to understand sort of how that plays into that. But before we do, yep. there's got to be a brass tax element of this. If I'm investing my money with you, are your returns at least on pace with, if not outpacing, a, a generic market return? So if yeah. I were to buy Carbon Collective or the S&P 500? Totally. Um we, on a month-to-month -month or year-to-year -year basis, what we could say is that they will be slightly different. We are taking a different approach. We are not buying and selling stocks based upon market whims. We are not trying to take that level of activism and trying to beat the market. That just frankly doesn't work. Um, the most recent survey of this came out, which was showed that yet again, 79% of actively traded funds underperformed their benchmark indices. It's my Peloton story. So, like, I'm, I, yeah, it's actually worse than chance, right? That is why Warren Buffett says, just buy the index. Because by and large, that's going to be your most, your most robustly performing vehicle. Just exactly, and we aren't trying to break that logic. So right. we don't pick in our climate solutions. We're not picking which solar company is going to win. We invest in all of them, weighted by market cap and weigh, mm -hmm. weighing it by market cap with the rest. We're trying to take as much information from the overall market as we can, but passing it through a series of what are hopefully very clear and sensible ethical filters for it. When, what we do say is when we think over the long term, we do believe that this uh, strategy is likely to outperform um, over this period of time. When we look at the macroeconomic trends, um, and it could be stated as simply as this, the fundamentals of the fossil fuel industry point to it being an industry in decline. Right now in the US, over half of the oil we use is used for cars and trucks 
on our roadways. There's a technology that is just better. Electric cars are just better than gas power cars. They are stronger, they are faster, they need way less maintenance, they can run for over a million miles, they are roomier, you can charge them at your house, they're cheaper to own. They will soon be cheaper to buy upfront. So it's just, it, it's like a horse and buggy to a car. There's just a better technology that's here. That's a lot of demand for oil that is going to go away. And it's unclear, especially with the rise of solar and wind and batteries in the electricity space, where that um, additional uh, demand is going to come from for fossil fuels. Natural gas is probably of those, the one that's looking to be the most lasting between oil, coal, and natural gas. But just as an industry, uh, is that what you want to be holding over the next 30 years? One that's in decline versus holding the companies and industries that are replacing it. So generally, I'd like to think about you that. invest in growth. Right. And then, so we kind of have two. Either the companies that are helping to save the planet will be the fastest growing ones, or we should all just be investing in land well above sea level and whoever makes the best sandbags. Yes, that is, I, I think that there is an approach here to that where there's a level and some people are attracted to this, some people get scared shitless about it, rightly so, um, that there's a level of uber pragmatism, which could be, look, investing in the stock market only makes sense if basically our current global structure remains largely intact between now and the time that you die. Um, if you really don't believe that's going to be the case, then the like gold gun and piece of land strategy of investing could make a lot more sense for you. Was that an original Nintendo 64 Goldeneye reference? <laughs> I really wish it was. It could be in there. Back, I, I was, I was a PS. I mean, I or just an actual James Bond, like, like you know. Well, we're going to say it was. For the sake of this conversation, I do hope that that formative part of us millennial childhood here with the, the golden gun being the... I mean, I still... All. I, I, I can picture the emotional resonance of finding that, it, it, you know, in, in the level of coming across the golden gun and how exciting that was. So it's it's very real. But this is what we give to you. You are the golden gun of investing henceforth. <laughs> um, now, you're not the only one that has this philosophy. Larry Fink who is the um, CEO of the largest assets under management firm in the world, BlackRock, comes out, came out with a letter a couple of years ago that says we need to be investing in more sustainable technologies. We need to be investing in the things that are not going to destroy the planet. And when you have a few trillion dollars to play with, people tend to take notice. So if that is the way that the world is going, one, how do you look at that when the largest institutional firms in the world are at least nominally on the same page and two how is how is your how is carbon collective going to differentiate among all of the other financial instruments and tools and advisorships that are out there absolutely this is kind of the crux question of why does carbon collective or a carbon collective need to exist in this space, especially when you have, it seems like, or maybe it seemed like large asset holders like Larry Fink and BlackRock were getting woke to climate. Right. The problem is that Wall Street in general um, is far too invested in the old world. So the kind of the, that was the opening of that story in BlackRock, of BlackRock facing significant pressure from the left, people like you and I, of saying, hey, you need to incorporate 
climate into your investing strategy. This just doesn't make sense. They responded to that pressure. That then created a counter reaction where now multiple legislatures across the country in red states are saying that our pension funds and our state management funds cannot be managed by any company that is talking about divestment from fossil fuels. And so Black Notably, some of the that, redder states, I think Texas was one of those states that said that they exactly. refused. Yeah. And so in response to that, BlackRock issued an open letter declaring its um, long-term commitment, and that's a quote, to fossil fuels and the fossil fuel industry. And that's the problem that Wall Street broadly faces today, is that as our world is starting to become a little bit clearer on certain issues like climate change, where you're really for or against, it's much harder to remain in the middle. They're trying to appease everyone. And in doing so, they're appeasing nobody on this issue. Mm -hmm. To us, and this is part of in starting Carbon Collective and that differentiation, is that it is really clear what we have to do to solve climate change. And investing is a key part of it. If we do not invest dramatically, uh, drawdown, Project Drawdown estimates it's somewhere uh, around $5 trillion more needed annually. Um, McKinsey estimates it's more like $9 trillion needed more annually invested in climate solutions. If we aren't able to achieve that, it does not matter how many trees we plant or how much uh, carbon dioxide we suck out of the atmosphere and deposit underground. Um, we just aren't going to be able to turn off the tap of emissions in time to uh, avoid catastrophic warming. And so it was from that lens that we saw, okay, this the current ecosystem of Wall Street isn't going to be able to align itself around this. And we also saw that in offering like an individual product line or something like that, that that doesn't actually, because, because there's such conflict of interest within the firms themselves, that they aren't actually able to fully align around this and do the level of education that is needed on this issue. It is always maybe listed as a feature or something like that, um, but you're having everyone being very careful and guarded with their words because of that backlash. There's also an element of when it comes to finance, it's one of the few industries where you have a direct feedback that says this is how much money you made or did not make. And so, you know, that that is boiled down to a single number, you know, your percent goes up or it goes down. If you invest $100, do you start do you end up with 110 or 90? And so, I wonder, do you think that is there a threat is there people is there enough people who are willing to say I am willing to sacrifice a few percent of my potential wealth accrual in order to follow my morals. So it's a question that I really push back on because I think it is it is part of a pervasive narrative that to invest sustainably is charity and that you only do it for those who kind of wear their heart on their sleeves and do that. And in the flip side of that, is are that fossil fuels are a really important part of a comprehensive balanced portfolio. And the reason that we push back on it is that that narrative itself is powerful and it, it changes markets. But if, if the most lucrative investments were the most sustainable ones, by virtue of the market chasing profits, they would also be the most invested in assets. So it stands to reason that, well, let me ask you, are they 
and what do they need to do to get there if they are not? Yeah. So there's just a lot of legacy in this and, and how it works. It's changed dramatically. So, uh, in 1980, uh, I think I'm going to get this right. The like fossil fuels in the energy sector represented something like 20% of the total value on the stock market. It's now like three and a half percent, maybe 4%. It's bounced back, but it's a significant reduction, um, in how, the uh, uh, Wall Street is viewing it, and in general, markets are viewing it. Well, the, between 1980 and now, you also had the internet, and so there's also some other companies that sort of pushed in there to have a different, a different market share. It's not just if your overall percentage. It's not just the reduction of the fossil fuel industry. It's also the advent of things like Google and Apple and Amazon and what have. Totally, totally. So there's been, but it's it's level of prominence. Um, has shrunk dramatically. Whether you can, you know, point to multiple reasons of that being one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And this, so the narrative, and this is what investment advisors say, and we get this a lot. And that people will say, you know, I, you know, these are people who work with financial planners will say, like, I really want to divest from fossil fuels. And the pushback is saying, like, well, you're giving up an important level of diversification, and that fossil fuels tend to be countercyclical to the overall market. And from a smart investing strategy, you want to invest in as many different types of things as possible so that if one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa, that in general leads to better results with that, these kind of these assets that have lower correlations with each other. The problem with that is that we've actually been, we've run the test. And since the year I was born, 1989. Um, I wasn't going to ask, but you, that, that's, <laughs> that's generous of you. <laughs> um, since 1989 to the present, if you had invested in the S&P 500 without fossil fuels, you would have made more money over that period of time um, And what's than just the S&P 500 in general. And what's really telling is this includes an entire decade where the thing that financial advisors talk about happened. During the 2000s, the S&P 500 was basically flat over that decade. I think it was like something like 4% growth over that period of time. The fossil fuel index in the US, the the energy index was like a 350% growth over that period of time. So this includes a time of pretty extreme counter-cyclicalness and yet still you would have been better divesting from fossil fuels. When you talk about your portfolio though of the, because as far as I understand it, it's kind of broken into three tranches. (laughs) You have your pure carbon, plays. So your fossil fuel industries and the ones that are reliant on that technology, and those are the ones I divest from. On the other mm-hmm. side, you have your pure sustainability or carbon reduction technologies, your solar, wind, and what have you. And then in the middle, you have your sort of middle 80%, which is everything that is in that gray area. And so if you take yeah. off the 10%, that's really bad. You put a little bit more on the 10%, that's really good. And then you stick with the 80% in the middle, and that opens you up to the advent of new technologies, new growth, new areas that maybe are not exactly with climate, but are still something that you could leverage new industries coming in. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I would say 20 and 20 on either side, but aside from that, you got it perfectly. Sure. So I want to switch gears for a minute then. How many years did you spend on Wall Street before you decided to start this company? Um, so 
my co-founder and I, we're outsiders um, to the world of finance. And in some ways, I think that's been hugely beneficial. What we had seen and, and our, our backgrounds are in sustainability um, and in climate. We've yeah. been entrepreneurs um, in the space of sustainability, both of us for about 10 years. We both graduated. We grew up together. We've known each other since we were four years old. And our inspiration for starting Carbon Collective was we wanted to build better tools that could enable individuals to collectivize their climate action. We didn't set out to build an investing company, but through our process of discovering of where what people were trying to do today and where they got blocked again and again, investing was this really clear place for it. And so in that, we also saw, and we feel this ourselves, that what we have been taught really well to do is to invest with the market with as low fees as possible. Exactly what you talked about. That is the smartest way to invest. And the only existing options that people who had come from Wall Street had built either achieved that part really well, but had very unclear ethical parameters that were not whatsoever aligned with solving climate change and no theory of change for it. So there is no completion of the emotional journey for us. This is ESG broadly. Mm -hmm. So that's one people who are steeped in Wall Street that they built. And the others came in and said, oh, we just need to build a way to buy green energy stocks. And uh, for that, people, again, some people would use that, but they would put maybe 5% of their portfolio in. There was no place of saying, I want to somewhere where I can put my whole IRA in a way that I know is being managed for this as much as possible. So we tried to take those approaches of saying, we don't come from Wall Street. We're not stock pickers. We're not trying to you know, guarantee or show any type of outsized returns over any given time period. Yes, we believe that the strategy makes sense on a macro perspective. Um, and we hope to educate and always be improving um, upon that narrative. Um, but we want to apply those index-based principles in the best way that we can in a way that is as transparent as possible. This is one of the big problems that we see with ESG and through, and I, I think it's why people like working with Carbon Collective is the simplicity and our level of transparency in what we're trying to do. You can see every single company that we include in that 20% of climate solutions that's in there. You can see exactly why it made it in. You can see all of the criteria and it's all based on publicly available information. And if you ran those the same process yourself, our goal is that you would have ended up with the same results. So, so how do you make this a defensible company if that's the case? It's about story. And mm -hmm. what we, so and this, I think, is part of the problem of, uh, uh, and I'm going to be doing some writing on this, is that I think people so often have it backwards, um, which is that, oh, you have to have like an AI bot or something doing all this. That's going to be really hard to replicate for some company to do. But that doesn't actually address the underlying demand in the market. Um, right now, what we believe we're seeing is similar to how we saw the unbundling of Craigslist and the unbundling of Excel, where you know, Craigslist, you have this product that a bunch of people are using for a bunch of different reasons, but it's not actually that great. So the very high demand for it doesn't actually speak to it being a great product. We think the same thing is true of ESG. There's a lot, you know, one third of all assets in the US are in ESG right now, but that doesn't we believe that's in spite of ESG as a product, not because of it. It just shows the demand to invest in building the world that we actually want to retire into um, and for your financial wealth to have impact. I think that's powerful to say that it's because of story and not because of some sort of trade secret that you can never tell anyone about. Um, 
and I do think that perhaps there's a corollary between that and something that may feel like far afield, but the meme stocks that I'm going to invest in game stock because fuck the man. And I, I don't like the system the way it is. And that sense of reversion from the norm or like revolt from the way that things what did take place are still but for the last 30, 40, 100 years can be driven towards someone who says, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be transparent. This is exactly what I, what I am doing and why I am doing it without yeah. some sense of there is a secret sauce that is unreplicable because of my, you know, because of my quantum computing skills. Exactly. And I think what the, that the meme stocks were also tapping into is that especially when it comes to our wealth, and I think this is just true in general, we aspire as humans to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And this is especially true when it comes to facing our greatest challenges like climate change. And so I think any company that isn't trying to deliver on that, and I think this is true of every single B2C climate company, that that is ultimately, that's the promised land. If you're able to deliver on that, then you are going to be successful. That's what we're all chasing after in this. Where do you see this in the next five, 10 years then? How do you see growing this to achieve some of those very ambitious goals? Yeah. So part of the advantage that we have of being focused at the intersection of climate and investing is that it's a really clear mandate. And so it allows us to hopefully do a lot of education in this space, but it also allows us to launch very naturally additional products and services within it. So right now we are focused on individuals um, and on companies through our green 401k um, and trying to, again, give them ways that they trust and are looking for of saying, uh, I want to invest in building that future. I want to retire into, especially around climate and have a company that I know that I trust on this, that isn't going to be doing some other backdoor shady things that aren't related to this. This is the bed of Carbon Collective, that climate and sustainable investing is not a box to be checked on an investing app. Um, and if it is, it's a, a portfolio that's a series of Carbon Collective ETFs um, that, that would be coming from it. Um, but that there is this broader demand for some level of a source of truth or trust um, in this space because there's been so much mistrust within it. I love that. I'm formulating a theory of the next wave of uh, consumer economics, which is going to be based on the integrity economy and that the companies that can win on integrity will be the ones that drive the most growth for the next 10 or 15 years. And I feel like that dovetails very much so with everything that you're saying from a top-down investment strategy, also from like thinking about it from a bottom up what what do i want to spend my money on from a consumer product everything from like toothpaste to cars totally and i think that there's just also an integrity in the brand um we look as vanguard as a really important example in this space and also robin hood in that the this is again like from uh, if if i was a vc looking at carbon collective why would i invest um is that in the world of fintech especially b2c fintech it's those who have started counter-positioned to the rest of the market that have been able to do the best. So Vanguard came out with their low-fee passive index funds in the 70s, John Bogle kind of leading the way, and all of the other mutual funds that were out there were like much more expensive and actively managed. They couldn't switch to Vanguard without undercutting their own business. So they were stuck 
they, they couldn't do it because their own business was going fine. Um, and so that gave room for Vanguard to grow and also to create this very specific brand with a very specific following that actually they're starting to deviate from and getting a lot of pushback from boggleheads that are out there. The same is true of Robinhood. Before Robinhood, you had to pay per trade. Um, for any like E-Trade or any company that's out there, Fidelity, they would undercut their own business by switching to Robinhood. It only took until Robinhood was big enough for this. And so Robinhood for us, is an interesting example, though, because Robinhood also takes that trade volume and just sells it back to hedge funds so that they can time the market with a little bit more efficacy. Yeah, I think when you zoom in on the example of uh, again of that, I'm not trying to argue. That no, I don't mean to, I don't need to be undercutting your case study. It's just I, I'm very conflicted about Robinhood because on one I, hand I, I think you're right, it's providing utility that it's free, whereas it used to be expensive. And on the other hand, they're getting paid. They're just not. It's just not totally obvious if you don't take a deep look about who's paying them and why. Totally, totally. And I think that this I'm more making this point from just a, a market's perspective and not right. saying like what is better or should you use Robinhood, but what allowed them to be successful in this. And I think it's that counter positioning. And so this is again, like why a carbon collective and why we believe this needs to happen and that Wall Street cannot align around our most pressing issue, which is climate. None of those companies can fully align around that until a, a carbon collective or a company like that gets big enough that they'll start dragging the rest of the industry um, along Definitely. with them. Definitely that idea of inertia and momentum is incredibly important when it comes to introducing new ways of thinking about something that's been around for a long time. I got one last question for you, Zach. Hey, you have been on this journey for a while, and this is not only not, this is, this is your second startup itself, right? The first, this was born of another one. What advice would you give the younger version of yourself that was just starting this journey? We talked a little bit before the show of how it's always harder than you think it's going to be. And if you really knew that, you probably wouldn't do it. Um, so I don't think I'd tell myself that. Um, I think I would say that you're going to be pretty impressed with how how much this is going to change you and that alone is something that is worth aspiring for in this and that you can do it i feel better now about <laughs> like as though you gave that advice to me that's a wonderful piece of advice to give anyone just that sense of like self-gratification with the development and you know the changing yourself for the better that's wonderful thank you zach I, everyone should you should give that up everyone now i deputize you as the <laughs> advice giver for all of the listeners of this indeed what a wonderful place to end it well thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate you um weathering all of this these questions and the scrutiny and I'm, I'm so excited to be able to, to share this with people because you're right. The system needs to change. And sometimes it's not more technology. It's a new perspective that is going to be the catalyst that will change the system in general. I, I think that's exactly right. And we have a lot of evidence that that's been the case. And I think we can sometimes get too caught up in the technology for it and lose the forest through the trees here. And the trees is we need to solve climate change. Um, thank you so much for having me, Lex. This has been super fun. I can't wait to come back soon. 
Oh, we have to come back anytime. Next time the Peloton comes up in a couple of months, we'll have you on. We can talk about that. All right, Zach. Cheers. Have a good one. You too.